Our last section in Mark ended with an exhortation. Verse 31, But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. To be first means to preserve self, seek self. Last means to put yourself last and to serve all. True Christian disciples do not seek self-prominence. They do not seek self-glory. They seek to serve everyone else in humility. This kingdom principle is illustrated for us in verses 32 to 45. Jesus Christ is the living embodiment of humility and service as he is the suffering servant. This kingdom principle is also demonstrated in the disciples. They're still seeking to be first. They're seeking self-prominence. They're seeking vain glory. And so when we read these verses, we can glean much about the kingdom principle of coming last. But this morning, I want us to limit ourselves to verses 32 to 34, and then this evening, 35 to 45. So that this morning we can simply focus on our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And as Christians, we always need this because we can become very distracted. Many good, lawful things in this world, but they can take our thoughts, our imaginations, our hearts, our time, our energies. And that's when we begin to sink in the water. Just as Peter, when he looked at the wind and the waves, he began to sink, we need to learn to do what he did at first, to look upon Jesus Christ and walk on the water. And so we'll look upon our Lord under three headings. Christ's obedience, Christ's suffering and Christ's exaltation. So first of all then, Christ's obedience. You remember our Lord and his disciples, they're in the region of Perea. This is a section of land that's west of the River Jordan and the Dead Sea, but south of the Decapolis. And it says in verse 32, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. So the Lord and his disciples are departing from Perea and now they're traveling to Jerusalem. And we know in verse 46, the route they take, they are going south, they're going past Jericho and they're going straight to Jerusalem. It is most likely the shortest route from Perea to Jerusalem. 
And I think it's important that we emphasize this fact. It was a real journey. We tend to overlook these things. We sometimes treat the Bible like a book of truths and then divorce it from real life ordinary history. But I think it's important because if you look at a map, you can see Perea, you can see Jericho, you can see the River Jordan, and you can see Jerusalem. This is a real person, Jesus Christ, with real human disciples on a real journey from a real region to a real city. And I think this is important. Because the era of liberalism is to divorce history from theology. As J. Gresham Mason so uh, profoundly exposited in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, liberals seek to take spiritual truths and spiritual theology, but deny the history. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading the biography of R.C. Sproul, and he grew up in the liberal Methodist church and the liberal Presbyterian church. They denied the historicity of the Bible. They denied the historicity of Adam, the historicity of the virgin birth, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so on. And they created some sort of spiritual truths out of it. Sproul tells us of how his minister would preach on the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And the sermon was, this did not really happen. What really happened is this. There was a crowd in which Jesus was teaching. Everyone had their own packed lunches, but no one wanted to share. And the miracle that historically happened was there was a little boy and he was prepared to share his lunch. And this inspired the crowd to share with other people. And that's what we have to learn from this. Absolute nonsense. But that's what happens when you divorce history from spiritual truths. Or the resurrection. Sproul spoke about how Easter was a big, massive event every year in his church. And every year, the message was the same. There was no physical, historical resurrection. It is simply a picture of how every single day we can have the newness of life to overcome any fresh challenges we may have that day. Heresy and nonsense. But that's what happens when you divorce history from truth. So something as simple as on a road, traveling, region to city, even these things are important because they're historical. And we must remember everything that happens in these Gospels and the Bible as a whole is historical as well as true for theology. But as our Lord and his disciples are on a journey to Jerusalem, it says in verse 32, Jesus went before them. He's taken the lead. He's a pace ahead of them. Imagine a group of people. 
and you're starting to go on a journey. Usually you walk with each other, don't you? Jesus doesn't. He just goes at a pace. And he's completely ahead of everyone. And when the disciples see this, it says they are amazed. They're astonished. They see the determination in his face and the pace of his feet. He is going headfirst, strong, resolute to Jerusalem. And then they follow him. But as they follow him, they become afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, where's he going so fast? To Jerusalem. What's happening in Jerusalem? It's the time of the Passover. You continue to read on, you'll find that out. And who is in Jerusalem? All the Jews. Jerusalem is the home of the Sanhedrin, the council of elders. The Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees from Galilee and afar are all coming to Jerusalem. And what's the problem? They're all waiting for his blood. As we read earlier in Mark in our previous sermons, the Pharisees and the Herodians counseled together to kill him. The Sanhedrin have sent men after men seeking to find him guilty with a charge. And here is Jesus Christ going before everyone, resolute, determined, a pace ahead towards Jerusalem. He doesn't stop. He doesn't slow down. He doesn't choose another way. He will go there. Now why? Why did Jesus Christ go before them at such a pace with such resolute determination? Two reasons. First of all, in obedience to the Father's will. To understand this, we must go back before the beginning of time. We must go into eternity where God, the blessed Trinity, is dwelling in perfect communion of love. And in the eternal Godhead, there is a covenant of redemption where the Father plans salvation to glorify himself. He ordains, First Peter chapter 1, Christ to be the saviour, the mediator, the prophet, priest and king. And the Son accepts the Father's will to do this. And the Holy Spirit will accompany Christ to enable him and to apply him. And then in time and space, 2,000 years ago, at the very conception, conception of the virgin birth, the Son of God affirms he will do his Father's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, 
It says these old types and shadows, the bloods of bulls and goats, the sacrifices, they cannot atone for a single sin. They're only pictures pointing you forward. And listen to the language at the time he came into the world. Hebrews 10.5 When he cometh into the world, he saith. So as the div- As the Logos is united to the human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Luke chapter 1 verse 35, what does he say? Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written, to do thy will, O God. Mysterious, mysterious, but true. As the eternal Son of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1, as the Holy Ghost overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and the humanity of Christ is united to the divinity, he says, I come to do thy will to be a sacrifice for sins. But as he grows up in this consciousness and understanding and grasping words and sentences and concepts, he begins to know in his humanity more and more and more what he's come to do. And when he's a young boy of only 12 years old or so, he's at the temple. And his mother and his father are very worried about him. They've left him. They they didn't realize they left him. And they come back. And what does he say? Mother, I must be about my father's business. And now here we are, 33 years of age. Three or so years of ministry. And now, where's he going? To Jerusalem. What will happen in Jerusalem 33 and 34? He has come to do his Father's will and to be a living sacrifice. And therefore he's determined, he's resolute, he will do it. But how did he come to know the Father's will? Well, one, he always has a consciousness of who he is. The divine nature will communicate to the human nature by the person of God, the Holy Spirit. And as the Logos is inseparably united to the human nature, there is always the Logos. Remember, Jesus Christ is a divine person, not a human person. It is the Logos who becomes flesh. The Logos does not take upon a person, but also through the Scriptures. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, which we read, where the Son of God says, speaking of the Father, He wakeneth morning by morning, He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God opened mine ear. See what's happening? Every day, God my Father wakened me, opened my ear, and taught me his will. And so as Jesus Christ got up every day and he prayed 
and he memorized or meditated on the scriptures or he went to the local synagogue or he went to the temple. Well, he wouldn't have went there often, but mostly to the synagogue. He would have read the scriptures and the Lord his father would have taught him. And as the father taught him that he is to come and to be sacrificed, how did he respond? Isaiah continues, I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiters. I set my face as a flint. With all resoluteness and determination, I will do my father's will. And therefore he goes before the disciples. What a saviour we have. What an obedient son. What an obedient servant. As Romans 5 says, by one man's obedience, many are made righteous. Our righteousness, our justification, our Heaven is all dependent upon Jesus Christ and his fervency, his zeal, his determination to do the Father's will. And here we see it done as he goes before his disciples to Jerusalem. Let us look at the Saviour. Let us be thankful to the Saviour. And let us love with all our hearts the Saviour who listened to his Father and obeyed his Father. But if we are in Christ, then Christ is in us. And this is a passage for us to learn of Christ's example. Is God not in us both to will and to do? Philippians chapter 2. And therefore we should learn from Jesus Christ. What are we to pray for every day? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that begin, begins with self. Do you pray that every day? Don't assume you know or do God's will. Do you pray every day, Father, thy will be done in me as it is in heaven? How do you do God's will? You must know it and do it. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. That's our natural, natural inclination. But be be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. So you read your Bible, you study your Bible, you meditate on your Bible and you find out that good, perfect will of God. And with all your heart, you seek to do the will of your Father. And thankfulness to the one who did the will of his Father in our salvation, we therefore in sanctification do the Father's will In our life. So every day know Christ and be in Christ by praying, Thy will be done in me. Searching the scriptures to know and to do the good, 
acceptable and perfect will of God. But there's a second reason why he's so determined to go to Jerusalem. It's a love for his sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 4, he says, When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. A true shepherd does not use sheep for his own gain, doesn't abuse them. He doesn't treat them as commodities. But a true shepherd loves his sheep. He protects his sheep and he goes before his sheep. And that's what Christ has done here. As he goes before his disciples to Jerusalem, it's for a particular reason. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So here is Jesus Christ with a love for his sheep in every age, knowing their sins, knowing their condemnation, knowing they're under the wrath of God. He goes to that cross to die for them, to give them life, to reconcile them to God the Father. Do you ever think that God was reluctant to save you? Do you ever have an inclination that somehow God begrudgingly saved you? He is gracious, therefore he's restrained to show grace. Absolutely not. It's the opposite of grace. God's grace is free and sovereign under no restraint. If God created a world and every single human being was reprobate, he would receive all the glory and he'd still be good. For grace to be grace, it has to be free and undeserved. And therefore, he graciously saves us. And God's grace is not a thing or an it. God's grace is giving us what we don't deserve, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes on this earth with his sheep, he says, I love you. I lay down my life for you. And here in Mark 10, I know the cost of going to Jerusalem. I know what it entails. And I go before them for love for my sheep, to die for them. Oh, fill your hearts with love. Because Christ's heart was filled with love for you. But secondly, we have Christ's sufferings. Christ's sufferings. It says in the second half of verse 32, and he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. So as they're on the road, Jesus Christ is before them. Sometime on this journey, maybe he notices they're amazed. Maybe he sees that they're afraid. There's something going on. So he takes them aside again and tells them what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But notice this word, again. Why again? Well, this is the third time he's taught them publicly. You'll remember, we've looked at it already, in chapter 8, verses 31. In chapter 9, verses 30 to 2, Jesus Christ has taught again and again 
why he has come, what is his mission. But he has to teach them again. Because every time he teaches them, they do not get it and they act in the opposite way. Why is it for three straight chapters, Christ has been crystal clear in his teaching and the disciples still do not get it? Where in Mark chapter 8 verse 17, he says it's because they yet do not understand. The word understand means to take different truths, think upon them, put them together and come to the right conclusion. And this can be us. You could be right here, right now, just like these disciples. Where Jesus Christ is speaking to you specifically, personally, and with clarity. And because you're not listening, and you're not thinking, you're ignoring what he says. Could Christ be speaking to you from this pulpit weekly to do something, to hear something, to believe something, and because you're not listening properly, you're distracted? And because you go away from the worship service, you're not actively thinking about it, you're ignoring him. Or could it be in your own personal reading of God's Word every morning, He is speaking to you personally with clarity, and because you're not listening properly, you're not thinking about it properly, you're ignoring Him. Praise be to God, He's long-suffering. Praise be to God, He's long-suffering. But if we continue and not listen, it will be to our own shame and harm. Because what's the end result of Peter not listening? What's the result of the disciples not listening? They deny and forsake Jesus Christ. Praise be to God again. It's not ultimate, is it? It's a chastening. They don't lose their salvation. But because they did not listen and apply, they forsook or denied Christ and they hurt and they felt it. And if we are people listening but not wrestling correctly and not thinking rightly and applying it, Jesus Christ may chasten us. And remember Hebrews 12. He chastens whom he loves so that we would learn and grow. So ask yourselves and ask more importantly Jesus Christ, are you teaching me something from this pulpit Are you teaching me something from my own personal private readings? Help me to listen, understand, and obey. But then Christ here tells them what's going to happen in verses 33 to 34. Now in verse 33, he's already taught this twice before. That the Son of Man shall be delivered into the chief priests, the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. But everything that follows is new. He hasn't taught this before. This is new. It's a development. And shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. That's new. So what can we glean from verse 34? 
Well, first of all, we need to look at it from God's perspective. Because if you read this alone, you could wrongly come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is a helpless victim. He's going to Jerusalem, and what happens? Boom, apprehended, arrested, delivered to the Gentiles, suffers and dies. No, that's not biblical. Everything that happens in verses 33 to 34 is God's will and God's divine plan. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, it says, Of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So Jesus Christ is doing the will of the Father in being delivered, in being mocked, in being spat upon, in being scourged, and in dying. This is God the Father's will to save his people in the sacrifice for sins. And this gives us an insight into how do we know the Bible's true? How do you know the Bible's true? How do you know what is just written by men, put together, and it's not true? There's many evidences, but here's one. The Bible predicts things that actually happened. When you read your Old Testament, there were promises and prophecies of things to come, and they were all fulfilled exactly in history, in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know your Bible? If you're a Christian for more than three years, you have been reading your Bible daily for three years and beyond. So we should know our Bibles. And so if I was to say to you, where in the Bible did it prophesy that the Messiah would be delivered to the Gentiles? Would you know? But it says that the Messiah will be mocked and scourged and spat upon and killed and rise again. Could you easily go to your Old Testament and say, there, 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 and there? We need to know our Bibles. We need to be good Bereans, searching the Scriptures, knowing it for ourselves. We should not be like Roman Catholics. I don't have to believe. The church believes on my behalf. And whatever that priest says, I believe. We're Protestants. We are sola scriptura Protestants. Therefore, we should know the Bible for ourselves. Do you know your Bible enough to know God's promises and fulfillments? Learn to read, study, take notes memorize so you know your Bible for yourself. It will be the greatest assurance for you. You won't be scattering your brain. Where does this say in the Bible? What does that say in the Bible? You know it and it will be engraven in your heart and it will be a rich, deep, wonderful blessing to your soul. It says here that the Messiah will be delivered to the hands of the Gentiles. In Psalm 2, verse 1, it says, 
Why do the heathen rage? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. So centuries beforehand, the Gentiles, the Messiah will be delivered unto them. And that's fulfilled in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. They bound Jesus, that's the Jews, and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. Fulfilled. Now, why did the Jews do that? It's because the Jews did not have the authority for capital punishment in the first century. The Roman government says you're not allowed it. But there's another reason. God the Father. God the Father wanted to demonstrate his glory, his love, justice, and holiness on the cursedness of the cross. So he put all the political, all the geographical, all the movements together in his sovereign providence. So that through Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, the Lord of glory would be crucified. Salvation for the world. But it says he was to be mocked. And that's prophesied in Psalm 22 verse 6. I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despise of the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out the lip. And where's that fulfilled? Matthew chapter 27, 29. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. How can we read that with dry eyes? How dare we read that and say it happened and moved on? This is our beloved. This is our saviour. This is the God of heaven and earth and he's treated like a worm, like an animal. Dress him up like a carnival king. Slap him in the face. Belittle him. Hail, king of the Jews. This is what he did willingly out of love for us. Scourged. To scourge means a whip with bones, glass, shades, metals that would lacerate and lacerate a man's back. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. With his stripes or with scourging, we are healed. And it's fulfilled in John 19, 1, where it says Pontius Pilate took him and scourged him. Spit. Many a man have said, punch me in the face, but don't you dare spit in my face. Disgusting, isn't it? When someone spits in your face, they treat you like nothing. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Fulfilled in Mark 15, 19, they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him. And again, Christ did it out of the Father's will, out of love for you. And then it says they will be killed. Isaiah 53 verse 12, He hath poured out his soul unto death. 
Psalm 31 verse 5, into thine hand I commit my spirit. I'm going to die and give up my spirit. And that's fulfilled on the cross in Mark 15 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He died. He experienced separation of body and soul. And this is our Lord's sufferings prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in time and space. The Bible is absolutely true. And he did this all, not stubbornly digging in your heels. I guess I must. He did it willingly, determinately, resolutely for his Father's glory and the abundance of his heart for his people. But thankfully, we do not worship a dead saviour. We worship a risen, living saviour. And here we see his exaltation. Not only will he be put to death, but on the third day he shall rise again. And wonderfully, the Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah to come will be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. That doesn't mean his soul went to the place hell. It means his life in the place of death. Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. See, the body corruption, it confirms it. Thou wilt show me the paths of life. My body will not decay. I will die and I will be raised again to the paths of life. And in Acts chapter 2, it says this is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, and then quotes Psalm 16. And this is wonderful. Because Christ suffered in humiliation, but is raised in exaltation, and we share in it. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. But here's the exaltation, crowned with glory and honor. And here's the good news, it wasn't just for him, it was for us. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. Do we see that? As he was raised from the dead for his glory, it is shared with his sons unto glory. First of all, Christ, as he's raised from the dead, In Romans chapter 1, it says he is declared to be the Son of God with power. It simply means as he's raised from the dead, everyone knows he is now the Lord of glory. Or as Acts chapter 2 says, God has raised Christ and made him Lord. This means as mediator, he is that 2 Samuel 7 Son of God who rules and reigns in authority and power. 
It says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. His Father's will. His Father's will. He is in the heavens in a blessedness, a communion with God the Father from all eternity. And he comes to this world for suffering, for spitting, for mocking, for shame. And then in accomplishing the Father's will, he goes back to his Father's right hand side and in his presence is the fullness of joy. But not only that, he shares it with his people. He gives us his glory. And I want to look at that glory from a particular angle. Who delivers Jesus here? Who mocks? Who spits? Who scourges? Who kills? Gentiles. You're not a Jew. And you're not Israel. You're a Gentile. And tell me, when Jesus Christ came to this world, what did he say in Matthew 10? Do not preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Do not go to Gentile lands. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel is not for us yet. And tell me, my brother and sister, what happened when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? There's the promise in John 12, when they left me up, all peoples, Gentile peoples, will be drawn to me. And then when he's actually raised up, what does he do? Great commission. Go ye therefore and disciple the nations, Gentiles. Or Mark's version, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to the Jews only. No, to every creature. As Ephesians chapter 2.12 says, that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were afar off are now made nigh by the blood of Christ. It's good news for us Gentiles. And he has given the glory not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. So we share in that glory. We are now the people of God in the church, Jew and Gentile. Where we are the sons of God by adoption. We receive resurrection life here and now and resurrection from the dead in the future. And as the Son goes to the Father's presence with the fullness of joy, what happens when Christ returns? John 14, I will come for you. I will bring you to where I am and you will have the Father's dwelling places, the presence of the joy forever. And that's grace. That's grace. Gentiles killed, spat, scourged, mocked Jesus Christ. And he was mocked, spat upon, scourged and died 
for Gentiles. That's the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And if we have faith in this Saviour, he did it for his Father's will and glory, and he did it for us out of love. I don't know where you are right here, right now. I don't know if life is going swimmingly or you feel like you're more like drowning. There are many needs that God deeply cares about. But let me tell you your greatest need, eternal life, eternal life. And if you're someone right here, right now, and you do not have eternal life, Christ is offering his love and grace to you. He experienced us all and he will gladly receive you if you turn to him by faith. And brother and sister who do have faith in Christ, whatever you're going through right now, this is your greatest need and your need is met. You have a saviour who loves you and gave himself for you and he experienced all this suffering for you and you share in his glory. Worship Jesus Christ, be thankful to God and live for him and rejoice in him. Let us pray.